right, open to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is about God's eternality, if that is a word. I think it is. But anyway, the eternalness of God and the frailty of man. This is a psalm of mourning where the people complain about God's judgment and the shortness of life. But even in the midst of sorrow, the people acknowledge the security that they have in the Lord and they pray for renewal. This is the only psalm in the book of Psalms that's credited to Moses, who wrote two other psalms in the Pentateuch, which is the first five, Bibles, the first five books in the Old Testament. He wrote uh, poems in Exodus 15 and the other one in Deuteronomy 32. This psalm <clears throat> has four sections. The first section is an affirmation of the security of a life that's lived close to the Lord, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, a complaint about the shortness of life. Verses 3 through 6. Third, a complaint about God's judgment on his people in verses 7 through 12. And then fourth, a prayer for restoration in verses 13 through 17. The theme is God's eternal nature is compared with man's frailty. Our time on earth is limited and we're, used, we're, we're to use it wisely, not living just for the moment, but with our eternal hope in mind. Again, the author Moses making this the oldest of all the psalms. This is the first psalm now in the book in book 4 of Psalms. Psalm 90 takes a look at the life of of man, particularly the shortness of it. Plus quiet confidence in God who is the steadfast hope of the righteous. This psalm is probably the greatest passage in the Bible that compares the greatness with God, the greatness of God with the frailty of man. Now, Moses had a strong sense of God's greatness because in Numbers 12, 8, he says, it says, Moses talked with God face to face. So in verses 1 through 2, again, we have the affirmation of the security of a life that's lived close to the Lord. So let's begin in Psalm 90 with verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses was well aware, probably better than most people, that life, even at its best, is uncertain. Ecclesiastes 7.4, Solomon said, Remember that nothing is certain in this life. Nothing is permanent in this life. But Moses was very aware of God's existence. And he knew that God is the only foundation for everyone. So if you're abiding in him, that is, if you're abiding in Christ, you're eternally secure. And the word abiding is the is the key, because the word abiding means to to stay in a given place, state or relation. So as long as you're staying in Christ, in, in that in that given place in Christ, in that relationship with Christ, you're eternally secure. There is no security outside of Christ. Plus, the one who trusts God has a secure dwelling place. It is a refuge in him. We have no permanent residence here. This is not our home. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. Our citizenship, said Paul said, is in heaven. Are you looking forward to such a home as heaven? 
Or are you putting all of your hope and, and, uh, and all of your earthly work into temporal or perishable things that will soon pass away? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We don't look at the troubles that we can see right now. The, one, the, the troubles that we experience, that we go through in, in our day. Instead, we look forward to what we haven't seen yet. Because you see, the troubles that we see, the troubles that we experience here, they will soon be over. But the joys to come, hey, they will last for eternity. Hebrews 12, 2 says, because of the joy awaiting him, Christ, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Jesus endured the cross. I mean, that that had to be the most terrible thing he could ever experience or you know, that anyone's ever experienced. You see, the cross involves shame. It involves suffering rejection, despising. And yet he, dis, he, he disregarded the shame of it. And even the temporary rejection by his father. When Jesus said, Father, why, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus suffered for all the sins of the world, yet he endured the cross and he finished the work that the father gave him to do. And it will take no less for you and me. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, but he who endures, notice, to the end shall be saved. And though the readers of Hebrews had suffered per- persecution, the, the writer said that you, you haven't resisted to bloodshed. He said, none of you have yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. None of them was yet a martyr. But in Jesus's battle against sin, he shed his own precious blood. So, What was it that enabled Jesus to endure the cross? You see, we have to always keep in mind that during his earthly ministry, he didn't use his divine powers for his own personal needs. Now, Satan tempted him to do this in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4, when he was tempted by Jesus in the wilderness. And he was hungry and says, hey, why don't you turn the stones into bread? And, and, you know, he, he Satan tried to get Jesus to use, you know, his his you know, his powers to, to make life easier for himself. But Jesus never gave in. You see, it was our Lord, Lord's faith that enabled him to, do, to endure. You see, he kept the eye of faith on the joy that was set before him. From Psalm 16, 8 through 10, it says he knew that he would come out of the tomb alive. You see, he wasn't looking at the cross. He wasn't, you know, looking at the cross and, and, and saying, man, I'm going to suffer and it's going to be horrible. And, and, and then because you know, a lot of times when we look at what we're going through and we look at the suffering that may be involved, we, we want to quit. We want to give up. But Jesus knew, you know what, I'm going to come out of this. I'm going to be you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to come out of this and, and it's not going to be a forever thing. He knew he was going to come out of the tomb alive. Again, in Psalm 16, 11, David speaks about the fullness of joy in the presence of the Father. Also from Psalm 110, verse 1 and 4, we read that Jesus knew that he would be exalted to heaven in glory. So the joy that was set before him, notice, the joy that was set before Jesus, that's what he kept his eye on. That's what he was looking at. He was looking beyond the cross. 
Many times we look at our problems and never beyond them. We don't look at the promises of God, the encouraging uh, things that God tells us and the promises that God gives us that, you know, we're going to get beyond this. We're going to get past this. So the joy that was set before Jesus would include Jesus' completing the Father's will, His resurrection, and His exaltation. That was the joy that He was looking toward. You know, His joy in pre- and also His joy in presenting believers to the Father in glory. So you see, that's what He was looking at. That's what He was focused on. Not on the cross. Not the trial that He was going to go through. Not the sufferings that would be involved. All through the letter of Hebrews, the writer emphasized the importance of the future hope. And his readers, the readers in, in Hebrews, they were inclined to look back. You know, and, and that's what he was warning. He says, don't look back. Don't go back. Because they, they were looking back and wanting to go back. But the writer of Hebrews encouraged them, hey, look unto Jesus. Look to him, follow his example and look ahead by faith. The word everlasting in verse 2 means from the vanishing point to the vanishing point. God is from the vanishing point in the past and He reaches to the vanishing point in future uh, eternity. Just as far as you can see, from vanishing point to vanishing point, He is still God. What a thought. Man is just one of God's puny little creatures. That he breathed life into it, and then he became a living soul. This psalm looks at man as a created being, not an evolved animal. Man is a creature in a class all by himself. He has a body that was made from the ground. And it's a body that's going to earn its living down here by the sweat of his brow until the day comes when it goes back to the ground. That's the picture of man. And then in verses 3 through 6, we have the complaint about the the shortness of life. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. And Moses says, You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passed, when it is passed, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They they, They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. And then in the evening, it's cut down and withers. So it's again, again, up the picture of the shortness of life, the frailty of man. Now, in comparison to the stability of eternity of God that we saw in verses 1 and 2, Moses here points our attention next to the weakness of man and to the shortness of his earthly life. In the dry weather, and he uses this example here in these verses. In the dry weather of the Middle East, after an evening rain, okay, the grass can pop up in the morning. But by the end of the day, the scorching heat will kill it. Moses is saying, that's what our life is like. We're like grass growing in the morning after a nice evening rain, but by the time the end of the day comes, we're gone. We're done. Peter said, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The point being that God isn't slow about bringing the return of Christ. But he's holding back Christ's return and God's judgment to give people time to repent. To give people time to come to a trusting faith and relationship with Christ because he's not willing that any man should perish. 
Moses is making it clear that time passes quickly for us. In verse 10, you jump down there in verse 10, he mentions the days of our lives. They're 70 or 80 years. 70 or 80 years. And when I read this, I'm saying, well, uh, uh, there, there I am. You know, I got, you know, if, if things go well, according to, you know, I, I may have 80 years. 10 left to go. <laughs> you know, if, if he's, you know, wants to give me more, he will. Or less, he will do that too. But even the best years, Moses said, are filled with pain and trouble. And soon, but soon they're going to disappear and fly away. You see, we need to remember that our life is so short. And that when we die, no matter how long we've lived, in time, whatever we've accomplished, it will be forgotten by everybody except God. That's, that's neat to think about. Everybody else may forget, but you know what? God will not. Because God doesn't forget. He's the only one that doesn't forget. And remember, only what's done for God will last forever. It will always be an everlasting accomplishment to God. God isn't limited by time. That's why it's so easy for us to get discouraged as the years go by. Especially when maybe we aren't seeing prayer answered right away. We see the world getting worse and not better. And sometimes we wonder, God, are, are you able to see the future at all? Can you see what's going on? Are you looking? Are you watching? Are you aware? But again, don't think that God has the same limitations that we do. He's called the unlimited God. He's infinite. God is totally unrestricted by time. He's not bound by time because he's eternal. We can depend upon him. And then verses 7 through 12 is a complaint about God's judgment on his people. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. Moses says, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath, we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years. And if, re- and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is talking about man's sin and God's wrath. The people are complaining about God's judgment. These verses recognize that man's greatest problem, it's not his weakness. It's that he lives for only a short time and then he's gone. Man's greatest problem is that he's a sinner. 100%. And he's subject to the wrath of God if he doesn't come to know him in a personal and intimate way. And it's because of sin that man experiences death and misery. Moses may have been thinking about his own sin. Remember when he beat the rock instead of speaking to it that kept him out of the promised land? That's what Moses may have been thinking here in these verses. Moses hasn't just compared man's weakness and shortness of his life to the majesty of God's power and immortality. He's also traced man's mortality to its source of experiencing death as God's judgment for sin. 
You see, Moses is showing us that death is connected to sin. And sin is the cause of death. And whenever you pass by a cemetery, understand. And look, that's what sin has done. We die because Adam sinned. And because we sin ourselves. And understand, death was never God's intention for us. Never. But because of Adam's sin passed on to us and we sin, we die. Did you know that sin always leads to death? It's 100% fatal. Sin leads to the death, not only of your body physically, it leads to the death of your dreams. How many, how many people's dreams have been killed, if you will, because of sin? You know, they have great plans. You know, a lot of young people got great plans. They go to college, get an education, and, and, and you know, they get caught up in, in, the, in the party life, and, and they get caught up in drugs or alcohol, and it just changes their direction, and they never, they never carry out those plans. Sin will, will, will kill your plans. It will kill your relationships. How many family relationships have been destroyed because of sin? It'll destroy your health. Drugs and alcohol, that, 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 that kind of life, it, it'll destroy your health. Eventually, even to that ultimate spiritual death, that is a separation from God forever. Now, if you know this, and now you do, then you shouldn't treat sin lightly or take sin for granted or tolerate it in your life at all. Not even the slightest sin. You will want to do everything you can to live right before God. Now, God knows all of our sins. I mean, God knows all of our sins as if they were spread out on this big table before him in heaven. Our sins are like a criminal's file. You know, they go to the police station, they open up that file on a particular person, and it's all there. It's all documented. Even the secret ones that you think, and I think maybe God doesn't know, you know, he can't, he doesn't know about them. It's foolish to think that. And they really aren't secret. We don't need to try to cover up our sins in front of God because we can talk openly to him and we can talk honestly to him. Jesus said in Luke eight seventeen, for all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. There's nothing that's hidden from God. You can't hide anything from God. And here's the neat thing. Even though God knows all of this terrible information about us, He still loves us. And you know what? He still wants to forgive us and He wants to use us. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you imagine? Before we came to Christ and whatever your life was like that, you know, mine was drugs and alcohol and the party life. Not, didn't want anything to do with Christ. I never even thought about Christ. And yet, Jesus still loved me. Still wanted me. I mean, this should encourage us to come to Him rather than to run away from Him. It should make us come to Him and... and, and open our lives to Him rather than us covering up our sin, which we can't do anyway. Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer used to say that secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. 
The angels are watching you. They see what you do down here. The psalmist said in Psalm 69, 5, Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. You can't hide from God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall guide me. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. The heavens, the Bible says, the heavens can't contain him. There's nowhere where you can go where God is not. Understanding that life is so short helps us to use the time that we have more wisely. And for our eternal good. So be careful, Paul said in Ephesians 5.16. He said, be careful how you live. He said, don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. And he tells us, here's why in verse 12. Learn to number your days. Lord, teach us to number our days. How? By asking, Lord, or asking yourself, what do I want to see happen in my life before I die? What little bit of good could I do toward that purpose today? Because I, you know, and I can remember being in my 20s and I used to think about the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. I said, man, that is such a long way off. I woke up one morning and thought, where did they go? I got more behind me than I have ahead of me. I didn't plan for the future. Because in my case, anyway, but in my case, when I was younger, it, it would never come. It would seem so far away. This is a prayer here in verse 4. It says, Lord, teach me to number my days. This is a prayer that God will help us to live holy lives. That's the path of true wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom in my days. Now, how do I make, how do we make each day count for God? First, by recognizing how short life is. Which is what Moses has been writing mostly about here. Because he says in verse 9, look, look at, we finish our years like a sigh. And it's over. We finish our life, it's like a sigh. One deep breath and an exhale and it's gone. We go through life sighing. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, you have no hope for eternity. So you just don't have anything to live for. That's what people say. We see a lot of suicides because people, you know, I just don't, I don't have any reason to live. I have nothing to live for. No hope, no future. They have no purpose in life or any direction. So what is this wisdom that we should apply to our hearts Based on verse 12, teach me, you know, how to number in our mind days. You know, it's wisdom that leads us to use this life to prepare for eternal life. This life that we're living here, hey, this is our schooling. This life is our training ground. This life is the setting for our education for eternity. So how foolish it is then to waste and throw away this time. As parents, how many times do we tell our kids, don't waste your time in school? Or don't waste time, period. 
But how many people throw away the chances that they've been given in this school of life to get them ready for the real life that awaits us when this life is over? You know, to the foolish child, we say, hey, you only live once. You only go to school once. You only go around once. You only get one chance in life. The same thing needs to be said of every living soul. But you see, we'll never use this life right until we've surrendered our wills and given up our hearts to God. So that through His wonder-working grace, He might cleanse us and sanctify us and keep us and use us, use our lives for Himself, for His glory. When that takes place, then everything's going to be okay. How does rightly numbering our days lead to gaining a heart of wisdom? Because it makes us realize how short our life really is. Again, this is the theme of this psalm. But to really see this, to really believe it, as few do, is to think little of his world, of this world. To think little of this world. To think of it, its riches and to think little of its riches and glory. To think little of this world's riches and glory. If I know and not just think but know for sure that I must do everything I can in such a short time, will I care very much for those worldly desires? Think about a prisoner on death row who's going to be executed the next day. Do you think he'd be overly excited if he inherited a million dollars on the day he was going to die? He really has nothing to be excited about unless he knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Would anybody go all out like they do for this world's wealth if they knew they were going to die in a few weeks? No, I don't think so. Secondly, to to think little of this world's sorrows. To think little of this world's sorrows. Should we be so bothered by the sorrows in this world? If we knew how little time they lasted, would we again be bothered by the sorrows of this world? The martyrs, the martyrs were known. The martyrs were known to strengthen their minds when they knew they were going to die by the thought that that this world's sorrows will soon pass. That's how they were able to go through cruel tortures and death. They're going to say, you know what? These sorrows are going to pass real quick. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for our light affliction. Notice Paul calls it a light affliction. He says, for our light affliction, notice, is but for a moment. And that moment is this life. And it is but a moment when you compare it to eternity. When you look at that, you know, on, on gravestones, and you look at that dash between the date of birth and the date they die. That's that's what life is compared to eternity. This life is nothing but a small dash. In comparison to eternity. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, which is this life, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Amen. So the person who rightly numbers his days lives above the world. He doesn't 
He doesn't glory in it. He doesn't, he doesn't desire it. He doesn't depend upon it. And he's free from the world's terrible downward pull and dictatorship, how it, how it oppresses him and pulls him and, and dictates to him how he should live. And then thirdly, knowing the shortness of this life, he'll seek that which is eternal. Why are we slow to number our days? Because we don't like to think about it as if it's not going to come. It causes us sadness and it frightens us. And we convince ourselves we don't need to think about numbering our days. And I think especially the younger we are. Oh, I have plenty of time to get religious. I got plenty of time to worry about heaven. Well, that's what the rich fool thought. When the Lord said, tonight your, night will be requ- your life will be required of you. Also, we love the world so much we can't let go. And then there's doubt. All of these con- things contribute to, to taking our time and numbering our days. We don't like to think about it. There's no need to. We love the world so much and we have doubt. The teachings of the word of God and the church are taken lightly. Or they're doubted. Or they're even totally denied. A.W. Tozer said, there are a lot of practical atheists today in the church. He said, they profess to believe in God, but they live as though He didn't exist. That's why we need to pray. Lord, teach us to number our days. Because if we don't, we'll never do it at all. Then in verses 13 through 17, we see a prayer for restoration. Let's look at verse 13 now. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. These verses are a a request for God to pour out his grace upon them. We need God's grace. We need all that we can get. Why? So that we might be satisfied with God himself. And that our work might continue as something that's of lasting value, even though we ourselves pass away so quickly. He says, Lord, satisfy us early with your mercy, that is with your love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. The only thing that will guarantee lifelong gladness is a heart that is satisfied in experiencing the love of God. Which means that nothing will satisfy the human heart at the end of the day except God. And that's why so many people are, are, want to experience one thing after another, looking for that certain thing that will bring them this satisfying uh, you know, desire in their heart. They're trying to fill that emptiness with something other than God. So forget trying to fill your life with worthless things because they won't work. Solomon said, God is, you know, it, it, it has given us eternity in our hearts. Only that that which is eternal will satisfy that void. All the worthless things that these things that this world offers you are temporary and they're going to perish. 
But the psalmist said, in your presence is fullness of joy. Notice, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence. That's where we find fullness of joy and pleasures forever. Don't even put your hope in people. They will let you down and they will be gone one day. St. Augustine prayed, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they find rest in you. Man desires satisfaction. He craves satisfaction. That's why, you know, the, the, the advertising business, they, they know how the psychologically how to, they, they present you all of these wonderful items that will make you so happy in life. If you own this car, you drive this car, you own this house, you wear these clothes, you drink this all of these things, oh, this is, this is what you're looking for. These are the things that will satisfy you in life. That person might have a lot of advantages and gifts, might have a lot of wealth and friends and health and a lot of stuff beside. And these things might distract them and interest them and fascinate them for a while, and that's all they'll do. But the Bible says that the ears are never... Filled with hearing and the eyes never satisfied with seeing. We're always looking for or listening for something new. Some new fad, some new thing that, that, that's blowing through our nation. And we want to hop in and, and, and get, in, get, get, get the ride. The ride of our life. They may have all of these things, but they can't really satisfy him because and his soul will still be hungry. That's why Isaiah said in, in um, Isaiah 55. He said, why do you buy food that doesn't fill your, 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 your belly and, and, and buy you know, uh, drinks that won't uh, satisfy your thirst? He says, you're wasting your money. Only God's mercy can meet that craving, that desire. Why? Because it drives away. God's mercy and grace drives away everything that gets in the way of our satisfaction. Everything in this world, it, it, it pales in comparison to the light of God in our life. The sense of guilt, the oppression of sin, the burden of worry, the fear of death. It is all driven away by God. And God's mercy gives the basics of the soul satisfaction, the very essentials of what our soul needs to be satisfied. A sense of acceptance with God. Consistent victory over sin. Perfect peace, the will and power to bless others and communion with God and abiding hope. Those are the basic essentials for a soul to be satisfied. But you know what? We need to seek it early. Verse 14 says, notice in the morning. In the morning is the literal trans, uh, interpretation of verse 14. Notice he says, oh, satisfy us early with your mercy. The word early, like I said, the literal interpretation is in the morning. Every day, every morning should be started with an intense search for the blessed mercy of God. The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. We need to seek them. Our life should start this way every day. Our life should start this way from the beginning. The parents for their children at its birth. 
the child itself as soon as it's able to understand. I mean, what problems we could avoid, what good is guaranteed to us if we would do this? I mean, the sooner that we seek the mercies of God, how much trouble we would avoid in our life. How many people I've heard say, man, I wish I'd have known the Lord younger in my days when I was younger. And it would save us so much heartache. The result of seeking the Lord early will be a blessed life. You can experience heaven right here on earth. Verse 17 says, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hand for us. Moses here asked for the grace of God to make what he'd been trying to do for God meaningful. Lord, bless what I've done. So if he's put us in this life, you guys, if he's put us in this life to do something good for him, then it's important that we find out what it is. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. It is for sure true that the body in the grave, hey, can no longer, you know, uh, use a tool in, in its hand. The brain is no longer able to study or think once the body is in the grave. Solomon is speaking only of the body. He says here what, uh, in, in Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Solomon is talking about the hand, not the soul. It's the hand that will, be, that will be put into the grave, not your soul. If you're a child of God, you will go into the presence of the Lord. As Paul said in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. You see, if you're not a child of God, you'll go to the place of the dead until you're raised to be judged at the great white throne judgment. This life, as we know it, doesn't end at all. There is no such thing as soul sleep or purgatory. And you know what? God doesn't, need, God doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need anything from us. We seem to create more problems for Him than anything else. He can raise up children from the very stones of the earth if He wanted to. As long as we're here, we are required to do something for Him. So let's find out what it is and then do it to the best of our ability while we can do it. And let's pray that God will take what we do and he will establish it so that it may remain to bless future generations. To leave an inheritance behind for those that, that, that we leave behind. Moses did what God had called him to do and God established his work. Notice we're reading his work tonight. The first five books of the Old Testament. Moses did what God had called him to do and God established his work. He left it behind for us. We see in the continuing history of Israel of which he was a big part in the first five books of the Bible which he wrote and I said even this psalm. Moses has been gone for how long now? And he's left. Look at his work that he did then. We're looking at it tonight. We're being blessed by it tonight. Verse 15 says, and make us glad. Establish our work and make us glad. No one can, you can't overestimate the blessing that God's gift of gladness is to us. It enhances our relations. It encourages us to work. It lightens our burdens. It helps us over a lot of difficult places. 
All man-made gladness is temporary. And it's powerless to truly help. But the gladness of the Lord is what the psalmist prayed for and what we need to pray for also. So let's look at its essentials and what it's made up of. And the following verses of the psalm clearly tell us. Verse 16, God's word must, uh, God's work must appear to us. In other words, God's salvation, because salvation is totally his work and must be seen by us and, and seen as our salvation. Here's the main essential of all true gladness, being saved. Then his glory also in verse 16. In other words, God must be seen to be the delight and the joy of our soul. In Psalm 43, 4, David speaks of God as God, my exceeding joy. Is he your exceeding joy this evening? This is what is longed for, what is so desired in Psalm 63, verse 2, to see your power and your glory. Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. The soul has to learn to delight itself in the Lord and then it will glorify God. It will glorify God. Again, the, the, the glory of God will be seen. Also, the beauty of the Lord our God must be upon us. Verse 17. In other words, the graciousness and the gentleness and the goodness of the Lord's character. His purity, His holiness, His truth, and His righteousness. It must be upon us. It must be seen in, in us. These things make up the beauty of the Lord. These are His attributes. And you know what? They're so impressive that they're attractive. They attract. The psalmist said in Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? These things must be upon us. These things are the beautification of the doctrine of God our Savior. These are the things that, that, that again, beautify the word of God because they're seen in our lives. They were and are all seen in Jesus. And you know what? They irresistibly draw men to him. How many times have you heard a person say, oh, man, I I wish I I was like that person. I wish I had that joy or I wish I had that ability to to overcome like they do. I mean, I've seen them go through trials and tribulations and and their eyes are on God and they, they depend upon him for everything. It's an attraction that people see. And they want. All they're looking for is some really good witnesses. Because they irresistibly draw people uh, to that kind of a character. When these things are missing, it's all, it kills all the gladness. When the purity and the holiness and the truth and the righteousness, when all of those things, God's graciousness, gentleness, goodness, those characteristics, when they're missing in our life, it will kill all the gladness. And then lastly, our work must be established. Verse 17 says, Moses tells God, establish the work of our hands. To know that what we're doing here is is, is not in vain. That we're not laboring in vain in, in serving the Lord. And that when like the disciples let down their net, the Lord filled it. This is 
Christ establishing our work. And by it, God makes us glad. In closing, this psalm recognizes the shortness of this life and the truth that God is able to establish the work of our hands. That is, making what we do for God count eternally. Do you want, to do, do, do you want God to do that? Do you want your life here and what you do here have meaning? Do you want it to count for something? Do you want it to be a blessing to others? It took me 40 years to come to that place where I said, I just don't want to go to church. I just don't want to go to church, God. I want to do something that, that hey, I'll leave behind. Something that, that will bless others, hopefully. The only way that can happen is if God establishes your work. And may He do that so others who come after you will be blessed because of you. So that when you die and you stand before God the Father, you'll hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. And I remember Pastor Chuck saying that in my whole life of ministry, if I don't find my family in heaven, I've wasted that life. Our families. We need to do a work that will be established here. Where our kids will we'll, we'll come to that relationship that we have with the Lord. I want to see them in heaven. And I want what, whatever I've done in this life, at home and, in, and for the Lord, for them to remember, my dad was this, my dad did that. My dad, that's what got my mom and dad through in their marriage, was their relationship with Jesus. So that they have that foundation to fall back on once I'm gone. Lord, establish the work of my hands. May that be a legacy that I leave behind as an inheritance for my family. But I do pray for that to be broader in the kingdom of God. May he do that so that others who come after you, like I said, will be blessed because of you. And when you die and stand before the God, stand before the Father, you know, he'll, he'll bless you. In the wilderness, Moses saw over one million people die. He probably went to more funerals than anybody else. Man's body was taken from the ground, and Moses saw that body go back into the ground where it came from. We need to do something in this life that will have value in eternity and value here. Moses out there in the desert stopping day after day in the wilderness to, uh, well, during his wilderness march to bury somebody got a perspective on life that many of us don't have. That's the beauty and the, and the practical usefulness of this psalm. Life is short. Let us make it count. Father, we thank you so much for your beautiful word and we thank you for this, this psalm of Moses, God. And Lord, may we take from it the things that, God, you, you, you brought out to us, Lord. Father, let us pray that you would establish the work of our hands, God. 
May our work be for your glory and for our good and for the good of others, Lord. Father, may we look to you, God, and recognize that, Lord, we, 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 we live for you, God. We, we, we serve for you, Lord. And God, maybe we don't see results right away. It's like the farmer who, who gets up morning after morning, tills the ground, plants the seed, waters his crops in the heat and in the dust. He doesn't go to bed and wake up the next morning and run out to his field and expect a harvest. It takes time. But if he stays faithful to the task, he will reap a harvest. And if we will stay faithful to God and the work that he has set before us, he will establish our work. And in due season, we will reap. So let us not lose heart or grow weary in doing good. For you have promised that if we plant and we water, you'll bring the harvest. So Father, we thank you. We praise you. And may you bless my brothers and sisters and be with them, Lord. And Father, we just